Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September 25th, and you're very welcome to Inside Politics, the Irish Times political podcast. This is Pat Leahy, and I'm sitting in this week for Hugh Linehan, who's away on a vegan yoga retreat in the depths of County Cavan. In a little while, we'll be joined by Hazel Chew of the Green Party and our own Cliff Taylor to discuss the growth of the Greens, carbon taxes and the prospect for Green involvement in the next government. We'll also talk to New York Times reporter Declan Walsh about his rapid evacuation by Irish diplomats from Cairo and the Trump administration's relationship with the media. But first, Brexit. After yesterday's Supreme Court judgment in the UK, Boris Johnson is winging his way back across the Atlantic for an emergency sitting of the House of Commons in Westminster. To discuss this and the fallout from yesterday's extraordinary events, I'm joined by our London editor, Dennis Staunton. Dennis, describe the atmosphere for us there in Westminster this morning. Well, everybody's really just coming back. Some people uh, had already, your MPs had already gone off on holidays. Uh, Oliver Lettman was in India. Boris Johnson himself is flying in uh, due to arrive any minute now. And the Labour Party were at their conference in Brighton, which they've um, they cut short by a day. And so everybody's uh, arriving at Westminster in the next hour or so, and uh, we're not quite clear what's going to happen throughout the day. Uh, the uh, order paper simply says that um, there will be possible urgent questions and ministerial statements. So uh, what we do know is going to happen is that Jacob Rees-Mogg, as leader of the House, is going to come in. He's going to talk about the business of uh, of the day and of the week, and then probably uh, uh, answer questions uh, with regard to the, uh, the the Supreme Court judgment. And then what we don't know just yet is whether Boris Johnson will arrive back in time or will choose to come in to Parliament today. Uh, he, what he could do is to come in either today or tomorrow and make a statement on his visit to the United Nations General Assembly or alternatively, actually just go in a straightforward way and actually make a statement on the Supreme Court uh, ruling. And is it anticipated or is it possible that the anti-no-dealers, that, that alliance will again seize control of the Commons order paper? Yeah, but I, th- I think not just yet. So I think mm-hmm. what, what you'll see today is probably just, you know, uh, a certain amount of venting, as it were. And then there's a question, you know, which will have to come up uh, you know, tomorrow, which is uh, if the Conservatives are going to try to seek a parliamentary recess for a few days so that they can go to their party conference in Manchester, which begins on Saturday and is due to run until Wednesday. And generally speaking, uh, Parliament would be in recess uh, for the conference. And so it's not quite clear how... Uh, Labour is going to react. Jeremy Corbyn this morning suggested that uh, there was no reason why Labour should let them uh, take any more time off Parliament. But Diane Abbott then subsequently said Labour is very benevolent and it would take a benign and benevolent view of this, maybe give them a very short extension, maybe give them Monday and Tuesday or something. And so, uh, you know, so, so that's something that will, they will have to deal with. 
And then what I think you might see over the next uh, few weeks is a few things. One is that uh, I think the Remain Alliance will start looking at the uh, at the piece of legislation, the Ben Act, mm-hmm. which obliges Boris Johnson to seek an extension to Article 50 if he hasn't got a deal by October the 19th. And they might just take a look at that to make sure there are no loopholes in it. And obviously, I mean, people generally believe it was a very well-drafted piece of legislation, but it was drafted quickly and they you know, pushed it through in those days up to the prorogation. And so they, uh, so they might just take a look at that or else add, you know, pass new legislation. And that would, as you say, involve taking control of the order paper, which, of course, they have the numbers to do. I think the other thing that um, you might see is that they're going to start asking for uh, documents, internal communications within Downing Street between, say, uh, Boris Johnson, Jeffrey Cox, the uh, Attorney General, Nikki DaCosta, the uh, Head of Legislative Affairs, and perhaps Dominic Cummings, his main advisor. And just to see, to try to piece together what exactly really went on in the days before that decision to try to suspend Parliament. And so uh, they'll seek that. And then I think the other thing that Boris Johnson probably does have to worry about as well is there's another story which uh, the Sunday Times had last Sunday, which was about his time as mayor when uh, a woman that he was uh, friendly with uh, who ran a tech company that she uh, received some government funds and uh, there's when you say the, friendly, Dennis, are you using that term in inverted commas? Uh, well, well, all I know is that they were described as having been friends, and, and I believe they, uh, uh, you know, that he's said to have called to her to, to have visited her, her in her home a number of times. Anyway, they, this, uh, this businesswoman uh, received um, uh, received some uh, government funding, and there's now a question that the London Assembly have given Boris Johnson 14 days to give details of all his contacts with this woman and all his communications. Must he supply that information? Can he be compelled to do so? I don't think... What powers does the Assembly have? I don't think he can necessarily be compelled to do it, but nonetheless, it, it can all add to the embarrassment and then perhaps what can happen is that Parliament can then get involved and start asking questions about this as well. So that's so I think you'll probably see that. The other thing is that before he before the suspension of Parliament, he was due to go and uh, and visit uh, you know answer questions from the liaison committee, which is the committee that represents all the other all the uh, select committees, and that would be quite a long session where he could be put under pressure about uh, you know about everything from his Brexit policy to the prorogation to how. He's running Downing Street. So I think it's going to be an uncomfortable few weeks for him one way or another. Yeah, you write uh, this morning in your uh, analysis piece that more or less every part of his strategy has uh, has failed. And the picture that you've just described there is of somebody whose options are constricting around him. I mean, can you imagine a way out for him or what is a plausible way out for him out of this? Well, I think if we, uh, you know, if we look at you know where he finds himself, we're heading towards this date of uh, October the nineteenth, which is two days after the European Council meeting, at which, if there was to be a deal, the deal would be made. So, one way he can fulfil his promise to get out of the European Union on October the thirty-first is that he actually does a deal and gets that deal agreed with the European Union and then comes back to Parliament and gets it through. And uh, it looks, as you yourself have reported, and uh, and everything that we hear, is that uh, that you know, Boris Johnson and the British government are very far away from any kind of landing spot that would be 
uh, negotiable for a deal. They just haven't gone anywhere near uh, the, the distance they would have to travel to actually get to negotiating a deal that the European Union could live with. So, uh, so that's you know one option that he has. The other option would be that uh, you know he could. Uh, be obliged to go and seek this extension of Article 50, um, and or at least that somehow the extension is sought and is granted, and then Brexit is delayed for three months, and then he gets his general election. But then he's going into the general election having uh, failed to deliver on his promise to d- deliver Brexit do or die by the end of October. And there, I think he has he's going to have a problem with the Brexit party. And the Brexit party, uh, Nigel Farage this morning, was once again offering Boris Johnson a deal, a kind of non-aggression pact. If Boris Johnson agrees to campaign for a no-deal exit, uh, then uh, you know, then Boris, then Nigel Farage would agree to stand down in some seats. But of course, the implication of this would be that the Conservatives would stand aside in some other seats, and so that you would have some Brexit Party MPs. So that too might deny uh, Boris Johnson his majority. So, so that's quite a you know a difficult one. I think maybe the most optimistic scenario for Boris Johnson would be that somehow he gets himself to uh, a deal with the European Union, perhaps involving some kind of Northern Ireland-only solution, a version of the Northern Ireland-only backstop, and that then uh, the Europeans agree to this. So the deal is done in uh, in Brussels. And then the European Union says, and by the way, just for all your MPs, you should know, we will not be granting an ex- extension. If, the, uh, if Parliament votes this down, there will be no extension. And then Westminster is facing a binary choice for the first time. You back this deal or you're definitely getting a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October. And that could concentrate enough minds to uh, you know, perhaps get this deal across the line You know, in terms of getting enough of the Labour Party people. I think also because Johnson, uh, having purged the uh, Remainers in his party, has threatened to purge the, uh, you know, the, the hardline Eurosceptics as well if they don't follow the line in terms of the, the whip on a deal. You know, it's all of this is kind of you know all, all of this is uh, you know we're talking about a long shot here. What I'm saying is that you know if he did manage to get a deal, I think that there's a chance that the Europeans would cooperate with him in uh, removing the option for uh, the Remain MPs in Parliament to say we can reject this deal and we'll still have an extension. But doesn't that split his own party down the middle and leave him a kind of a diminished figure, having done things that he said he would never do? Well, except if he gets a deal. I mean, I think the point is that if he gets, uh, you know, if he gets uh, a deal, and let's imagine, for example, that he gets a deal based on the withdrawal agreement with the uh, backstop replaced by this Northern Ireland-only solution, which looks very like the Northern Ireland-only backstop, but has enough uh, reassurances for the DUP to live with. If you had that, he would have most of his own party. If he had the DUP, certainly that would reduce possibly to single digits the number of uh, MPs from the Eurosceptic right of the Conservative Party who would vote against it. And then I think it would also increase the number of Labour vote, Labour MPs who would be prepared to cross over. And I think also just as MPs are faced with a very stark choice, if they were faced with a very stark choice of a deal, which they know is acceptable to the European Union and has been signed off by the European Union, uh, accepting that deal or going inevitably for a no-deal Brexit on the 31st of October. I think many of them would just go for the deal, whether they liked it or not. What I hear both from uh, around government circles in Dublin and also from Brussels 
is that the events yesterday will kind of confirm a wait and see attitude that even if there is to be uh, a deal and even if the EU and Ireland are prepared to make concessions in the withdrawal agreement affecting the status of uh, of the backstop, that that won't happen until events play themselves out in Westminster over the next uh, over the next few weeks, which means, if that is true, that all of this will be kind of concertinaed into the middle and end of October and that actually not an awful lot may happen over the next couple of weeks apart from wrangling in Westminster. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And I think also, I mean, if you look at it now, uh, you know, one of the, you know, the, um, the European Commission people, they generally speaking said, uh, you know, there's been nothing interesting or useful that the uh, British delegation have shown them in the last while. But one of the first things that they did show them was what the withdrawal agreement would look like with the backstop removed. And so what they, what they really were trying to say there is we're not trying to renegotiate this entire deal. All they really want is, uh, you know, what they want is quite a lot, and it's kind of more than than the Europeans are prepared to give them. But they want a change to the backstop, and then they will also want a change to the political declaration to go for a more uh, lo- for a looser free trade arrangement. Uh, and uh, the political declaration is obviously not going to be a problem. But I suppose what I'm saying is that if it is a question of just a few days to get it done, you can get, you know, it's, you know, it's not like they're trying to you know, write an, a whole new treaty. It is really just uh, finding treaty language for this new version of the backstop or whatever you get you you want to call it. Now, you know, having said all of that, obviously what what we're talking about here is something that's very politically difficult mm-hmm. for them to do. And and as you say, there is no incentive for the Irish or other Europeans to make any move just yet. And even when it comes to it, you know, uh, there's a limit to how much movement it would make any sense for Ireland or the Europeans to make uh, on the backstop. Because what you, you know, there's obviously no point in having some kind of a mechanism that doesn't work. And so, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, so I, I think that, you know, certainly I, I, I would say that the European attitude is exactly as you described. Mm-hmm. Sit back, wait and, wait and see. And also, uh, you know, if it is a question of seeking an extension, well, you know, that extension would probably be forthcoming. And then you see what happens. And I mean, obviously there's a certain risk there in terms of, what does what new government comes in, you know, uh, and, and what, in Westminster? Uh, I mean, I think that there would have to be from the European side cast iron certainty that any new deal would get through the House of Commons, and I suppose the question as to how Johnson could demonstrate that, whether by way of indicative votes or, or anything. But I, I know you're pressed for time, Dennis. Well, ask you just one more question. That's can I can I. Could put one possible alternative course of action for Johnson to you to see what you think, and that is that he spends the next few weeks, uh, you know, being wrestled around in Parliament to his political disadvantage. The talks, such as they are, continue with Brussels, and he goes to he goes to the summit on the seventeenth and eighteenth with of October with no real prospect of a deal. He comes back and he says, "I tried to get uh, a deal. I tried my." best. I tried to accommodate Parliament. I tried to accommodate the EU. None of it has been successful. We are being prevented from leaving. I will not ask for an extension because I have promised the voters of the UK not to ask for an extension. So somebody else can do it and we will have an election in November. And under that, 
plan. He would resign, allow a caretaker government. I see the name of Margaret Beckett floated on Newsnight last night as a possible caretaker Prime Minister with cross-party support to secure an extension. And then there's an election in November, which crucially he can fight unsullied by compromise. Yeah, except that the fixed-term parliament doesn't work exactly like that. So that he can't, you know, uh, the question of him just resigning doesn't uh, doesn't quite cut it. So I think what you'd have in those circumstances, if he uh, said, I'm going to disobey the law and I am not going to write this letter or seek this extension, then you would have a vote of uh, no confidence in him and uh, he would lose that. And then uh, there would be 14 days for this caretaker government, as you describe it, to be put in place. Uh, before an election would be triggered. And then I think you would find that the uh, opposition parties could unite around some solution, whether it's Margaret Beckett or somebody else. It could even be Jeremy Corbyn. I don't know who it's going to be. That, uh, And then this government would uh, simply have the function of seeking the extension, securing it, and then uh, calling a general election. And um, and so that's certainly a possibility. Yeah, and, that's, and certainly you know, it's one of the things that the Remain alliance are talking about, the opposition parties are talking about now, when exactly should they pull the trigger? When, you know, when is it safe to have this uh, confidence vote? And what they're saying is, you know, we want to be sure that we have the extension before we can do that. So that, uh, you know, it, so for example, it could be after the 19th mm. of October. It could be if he's already sorted before the 17th of October, it could be then. Uh, but one way or another, as long as they're sure that it's been asked for and it's been received, then they will feel safe about going into a general election. I think that, you know, certainly that's the that's the, the way he would fight a general election on this, the people against parliament, mm-hmm. uh, you know, line. I just don't know that having failed to deliver uh, you know, he, that he's going to be in as strong a position as he would uh, wish to be. Well, Dennis, we shall leave you back to your ringside seat at this marvellous circus and uh, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. You're listening to the Irish Times. As climate protests on the streets grow, green issues and environmental concerns are moving to the very centre of political decision-making. Amongst the issues to be decided by the government in the coming weeks as it prepares its budget is a carbon tax. To discuss this, we're joined by Green Councillor Hazel Chew. Good morning, Hazel. Good morning, Pat. And by uh, Irish Times economics and politics guru, Cliff Taylor. Good morning, morning, Cliff. Hazel, you're one of the Green Councillors that was elected in this great wave of support for the Green Party at the local elections uh, last May. The hope in Green Party circles, I think, and the anticipation at leadership level is that you will build on this and uh, come the next general election, which will, we think, probably take place sometime within the next 12 months, and we'll see several, if not more, green seats in uh, in the doll. What's your perspective? Definitely. Um, I, I think we've been very much gaining momentum. Uh, it was, I, I, I won't I won't uh, lie to you. It was a complete surprise. The re- result was a complete surprise. But since then, uh, the party's been gain- uh, gaining momentum. I think the general atmosphere has been leaning towards supporting Greens. So we're very optimistic towards the uh, general election. I think the number we were bantering around internally 
is that we hope to get 10. So we'll see how that goes. Mm, that's 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 on the increase because I think you know maybe early in the early parts of the summer party people people in the party might have said you know if we get six seats that's the threshold for going into government but now we're 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 hitting ten should we get twelve or fifteen by next summer? Uh, we? Pat Pat I sit on the executive and this time last year we were very much going someone said six pretty sure it was Eamon that said six and we kind of all looked at him going. All right, six. That's that's optimistic going. But now you, you we we had a meeting recently where someone's at ten and they just went, we should aim higher. And that's the thing. So with with a good momentum, I think you can aim higher. And we have quality candidates and we have uh, a good messaging to push out as well. But ultimately, I think the public is also behind us. So well, this is the this is the interesting thing, isn't it? Because green issues, environmental concern, concern about environmental degradation, climate change, and stuff is you know, one of the great themes of the zeitgeist politically. And you guys, it seems to me, have an opportunity to turn that into hard political capital. I think we do. And I think we need to... uh work on that as well. I think a lot of people uh, 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 a lot of people look at the Green Party and I think what they see is uh, 20 years ago that it's uh, sandal wearing hippies that that uh, don't have many policies but if you look at how the party has built especially after 2011 we've built our party based on what policies will benefit best back to the people and how do we actually change um, how do we actually enact climate action because let's be honest, there's a climate breakdown at this stage. It's no longer climate change, it's climate breakdown. So we either do something about it or we don't. And if you look at all the other parties, it is everyone jumping on at the moment. So there is a trend going on. So, But there's also a lot of greenwashing. Whereas if you look back onto what... What's green, greenwashing now? Greenwashing is when someone does something uh, saying, oh, I'm going to do something about climate change, but actually don't do anything about it. So you will have had... Um, a number of politicians jumping on saying that they're cyclists, but they've never actually cycled in their lives and promoting how we should uh, better cycling transport, but actually doing the opposite and uh, on a daily lives or publicly in their role. But also in terms of greenwashing, if you look at Richard Bruton, uh, Bruton and the first um, student climate strike, there was a lot of greenwashing there because himself... Uh, uh, Hildegard Norton, a few others, uh, a few uh, very prominent people went out and posed uh, with the students and it was all um, on their social media of how supportive they are. And then the exact same day, uh, they or sorry, the next day, they signed uh, um, the renewed exploration licenses for oil drilling. So, and this is the thing, greenwashing is hypocrisy. It's, it's showing that you want to do something, but you're not doing anything or it's literally flipping the other way. Well, Cliff, you're an enthusiastic cyclist and indeed occasional wearer of sandals, uh, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yes. uh, only in the summer, only so, in the summer, Pat. Um, uh, but, but one of the difficulties that the, the Green Party will have if it enters government or any Green-inclined government is the translation of warm, fuzzy feelings about the environment and the sense that something must be done into hard policy, which is often unpopular with people because it forces them to change their behaviour or penalises particular types of behaviour. And I suppose the most obvious example of that, or one of the obvious examples of that, is uh, a carbon tax. Now, we already have a carbon tax, but it's been fairly well signalled that uh, that it's it's going to be increased, not just in this budget, but in future, uh, uh, m- most likely in future budgets. How difficult a, a sell is that? And 
what are its how effective is a carbon tax in changing behaviour? Well, I guess to answer the second question first, I think all the experts, including the Climate Change Advisory Council here, say a carbon tax is an essential part of what needs to be done to tackle climate change, to change people's behaviour. It's not by any means the only answer. Um, a lot of other things need to be done as well. Public investment, as you say, changes in people's behaviour, uh, changes right across the board. Uh, but everyone says that setting the proper price for carbon to affect the behaviour of people, of businesses, of governments, of, of, of everything we do is, is, is essential. And that would require to set a, a price that affects behaviour more than it does yeah. uh, at the moment would involve very substantial increases. It would. And I think this is the, the tricky thing politically, if you like. So the carbon tax has been in a few years now. It's set at €20 Euro a tonne. That's, that's, that was the introductory rate. It came in during the Fianna Fáil Green government during the economic crisis. Um, and really, we've been, we've been, I guess, messing around and talking about increasing it for a few years now. There was a great expectation that it was going to be increased last year and the minister pulled away seemingly at the last moment. Uh, the government saying, you know, we need consensus on how this is going to happen. Uh, we need consensus on how the money is going to be used, the money raised. And uh, they have some political cover now because the Joint Committee on Climate Action agreed that the target should be set at €20 Euro a tonne by 2030. Uh, I, I think we can point out in passing that most climate experts, I, I don't count myself... 80 Euro a tonne by 2030. Yeah, sorry, the... Uh, most climate experts say that, that the real price is, is considerably higher than that, perhaps 150. What sort of impact would that have on the price of home heating oil, the price of petrol and diesel? Uh, well, if you're, if you're looking at uh, talking of a, of, of, of a 10 euro increase uh, a, a tonne by next year, you would be talking about a fairly modest increase uh, for people. So a 10 euro increase, for example, would add around 170 to your petrol fill, a 60 litre petrol fill. 26 euro to a 900 litre kerosene, kerosene delivery, 120 to a bag of coal. But the point is then, that's not going to be enough to change behaviour. But what might change people's behaviour is if the minister stands up and says, well, we're increasing it by 10 euro a tonne this year and it's going to go up by 5 euro a tonne every year until it reaches 80 euro a tonne. Then people might start to change their behaviour, uh, might start to uh, consider the electric car the next time they're, you know, they're changing their car. Uh, might consider availing of the grants which will be available to ret retrofit their homes uh, and all those things kind of start to edge people's behaviour in the right direction if you like. It's not enough on its own uh, but it isn't as I say the Climate Change Council and pretty much every economic expert says this you know this is an essential part of what we need to do but politically it's difficult and it's interesting I wrote a piece about it recently and I know one can't rely on the feedback you get on, on social media uh, to judge much these days. Certainly not. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, a lot of reaction from people saying the like of, oh, it's all very well, but this is the people playing, playing again. It's all very well. But that's but, a quite a powerful trope. It is. It's all very well, but what about big business? Now, as it turns out, big business is paying already uh, through, through a carbon pricing regime. But people believe, feel they're paying enough tax. This is another charge. So I think that the gap is between general support, as you said, for climate action and the willingness to pay this. Mm. And that's why the whole thing about how the money is going to be used has, has proved to be so tricky and controversial. Hazel, how do you make the case then for 
you know, what are increases in taxation and, you know, inconveniences to people that, uh, you know, that, that force them onto public transport or whatever rather than uh, using, their, using their cars. How difficult is it to make the case for those objectives? So it's funny, um, Cliff brought up social media there. There has not been a day that I've got elected go by without someone telling me that I'm just out to tax them. So that the Green Party They're right though, aren't they? You are out to tax them. You are out to put it to increase carbon tax. But I, I think we need to look at it differently. I think instead of looking at tax, we need to look at benefits. So I'll probably dig myself into a bigger hole here, but if you look at the recent local property tax discussion that we just had in Dublin City Council, the opposition parties uh, all talked about how we want to increase local property tax and this will increase uh, your average household and uh, people won't be able to pay and it, uh, and it adversely affects the poor. But what we were talking about is actually something that the uh, the the poorest of the poor would benefit very little from if we had any movement on the property tax. What actually happened was that we were looking for um, the other parties were looking for a reduction. What we were looking for is that it will stay. But so the reduction is in place, the re- so it would be an re- increase. If you don't yes. maintain the reduction, what, it would be an increase. But Pat, what had happened was we worked out the numbers. So for your average household, for your average two bedroom or one bedroom apartment, your net gain from that uh, tax from the local property tax uh, would have been 34 euro a, a year. Uh, for renters, it would have been nothing. For people in social housing, it would have been nothing. But for the likes of Dermot Desmond, who has a 4 million euro house in Ballsbridge, it would have been 5,300 that he gets back. And this is the I thing we... I think it's considerably more expensive than that, right? <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But this is the thing with tax. We look at then the carbon tax. Instead of looking at the tax, why don't we start looking at the benefits? Who will it benefit? And how will it benefit? So... If you look at what we're proposing in terms of fee and dividend, we're looking to directly tax the fossil fuel companies at source. And after that, we ring friends to fund and provide checks via uh, either payslips or uh, through the social welfare system directly back to So you're in favour of giving the money back to people? Exactly. Because this has been ruled out by the government. I I think think. we, well, I I saw that and I think it's absolutely wrong to rule it out because what we want is behavioural change and we want to provide people with an incentive to change their behavior. If you get a check back um, from that, that um, to, to to your account, you will. Most people say you invest it back into your fossil fuels, but most actually that I've spoke to said no. They will actually probably use the check on a different energy source if it's provided to them. And this is the thing: we need to start protecting those that. Um, we need to support most, which is, again, the people who will be hit massively by increase in taxes. So um, I think Cliff mentioned how much it will cost per litre. So we've worked out a 20 tonne increase of 20 euro tonne. You're looking at uh, uh, €2.39 per bag of coal. You're looking at 0.05 for a litre of petrol. You're looking at 0.05 for a litre of kerosene. And these figures mightn't affect you and me or anyone on this table, but it does affect people who are not able to afford it. The the poorest of the poor. And what we propose in terms of fee and dividend is that it's a progressive tax that actually would benefit them because you are giving them a check back to invest in, uh, in, uh, invest in the alternative energy. And that's what we need to start doing. But we also need to support them in terms of 
other um, in other policies of retrofitting. We need to actually have, because after all, it doesn't matter what kind of energy you invest in, but if you are a 65-year-old living in a house that has that has no uh, insulation, that has p- b- badly proof uh, doors and windows, it's not going to last you very long. So we need to invest in a retrofit uh, uh, scheme for those who can't afford it as well. And that needs to be done now rather than later. Cliff, is there a danger for the Green Party and for Green-inclined uh, politicians who are pushing the, uh, who would push a carbon tax, that that they become kind of too fixated on the carbon tax because it's easy to understand, it's easy to explain. But as a green measure, as you said earlier, it's only one of a series of things and that they, you know, a government might... Mm die on the wrong hill so to speak yeah i'm sure uh, i'm sure the green party or the green party obviously has policies right across the board but i, I think there's certainly a danger that they get hit over the head with with, with the carbon tax as you say and the great fear in government is that it turns out and i think the hope on some some of uh, some of parties who are opposed uh, mm-hmm. to it such as Sinn Féin people for profit and so forth is that it becomes a sort of a water charges type of issue yeah i'm not sure it will but i still think it's politically tricky um, i think it was interesting what the Taoiseach said this week so the Joint Committee on Climate Action said we support increasing uh, the tax to €80 Euro a tonne by 2030. Probably far enough away not to be hugely politically controversial 2030, you know, nobody worries about that too much, but, but what's going to happen next year? And they also kicked to touch on the key issue of what happens with the money, which Hazel was talking about there. So there's two options. Everyone agrees that the less well-off, the people in so-called fuel poverty need to be protected. So the price of a bag of coal is going to go up as one of the most carbon inefficient fuels. It's going to get one of the biggest increases. And these people spend proportionately more of their income on fuel. So a likely increase in fuel allowance would be one of the measures uh, that, 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 that the money would be used for. About 370,000 households get fuel allowance at the moment. The, the row or, or the disagreement is about how the rest of the money is used. So Hazel is saying the Green Green Party wanted given back to people back in large a, part. Get a check by check in the post. Yeah, it was the, Leo Varadkar's original idea. It was, yeah, and he seemed to be quite strong on it. But he seemed to attack, judging by what he said in New York, yeah. to using the money uh, to put into a special climate action fund to spend on green projects. Now, interestingly, there was a consultation done by the Department of Finance, which seemed to generally support that approach, but it also seemed to suggest that people don't entirely trust the government to, to spend the money in an efficient way and, and it wanted the money really pinned down in terms of how it was going to be used. So, I mean, public transport was one of the issues that was identified as where people would like to see money being spent uh, and the improvements being be, be, being uh, being spent. So, so it's a tricky one. If the government just says, oh, this is going to go into a climate fund and it's, it's seen to pay for things which are going to happen anyway, I think that's politically difficult for them. But yet I do, I have to say, I think the the idea of giving back all the money versus fee and dividend is a bit messy as well. I'm not sure it's the best use of the money. It, it gives the money back to the better off as well as to the people who actually need it. Personally, I'd prefer to see poorer people protected and and, and, and some better use of the... Uh, Into a climate fund that would do things like accelerate decarbonisation, shut yeah. money point, that type of thing? Ex- exactly. Provide more charging points for electric cars. I mean, there's 101 ways provide more cycle lanes. 101 ways that money can be can be well used for green objectives. And the I think targets on electric cars seem to me to be hugely unrealistic. They do, yeah. And uh, especially when there's not enough charge points. So that would be <laughs> that would be one problem with it. And All I, th- right. I think the government is a little bit caught in this one. If you read the tax strategy papers, the kind of the 
the pre-budget papers done up by the senior civil servants. Now, the Department of Finance never like giving money away anyway. But they're kind of raising questions about how these allowances are, are used for hybrid cars. Is this a good use of money? How they're used for green cars? Can the, can the special allowance of these cars continue indefinitely? But, but yet, as you say, we have these hugely ambitious targets. So I think the government really needs to persuade people um, that it's ha- it has its its goals together here. Because I, my sense is that this is an area now that people are starting to look at seriously uh, and that people will change their behaviour, provided it's not going to cost them 10 or 20 grand extra, provided they feel that the car is going to get them to Cork or, or if not, there's going to be a charging point that they can plug into it. It's possibly an area where behaviour is starting to change and, and, and may change fairly quickly in future. On a broader sense, Hazel, isn't it a difficult case to make to essentially retard economic growth, which is, you know, we've seen in this country our carbon emissions declined when economic growth collapsed during the financial crash. So that was, from the point of carbon emissions, a good thing. Difficult sell to tell people what we want is a massive hit to economic growth. But this is the argument you're going to try and make. Yes, and to be honest, I think our economic load is going to stagnate. You are showing signs that it is going to decrease. So at the end of the day... Do you think that's a good thing? I don't think it's a good thing, but I think we need to be prepared for it. So we can argue whether it's a good or bad thing all day long, but if it's happening, it's happening. And my question is, how is the government going to prepare us for it? Or how is the next government going to prepare us for it? These are, like, are our climate emissions... Um, targets for 2020. We all know that we're a shop passer and we all know what the fines are going to be like. And all we can do is try to make sure that we are net zero by 2050 if we can. And if that affects economic so, growth, then that's something say we that's need a, to look that's, at. That, that target to be net zero by 2050 is, is unambitious and insufficient to tackle the climate emergency that is dawning upon us. Absolutely. I think we need to look at net zero even sooner by uh, if possible. But I think by ha- moving in this uh, step in the right direction is actually having proper plans in place to how we're going to reach that because as it stands since we were talking about uh, uh, electric cars there yes it does reduce carbon but it it creates all sorts of other problems as well then why don't we start investing in public transport why aren't the government actually tackling two of the main lobbies that produce the main uh, main carbon footprint being transport and agriculture and if we look at our transport policy Rolling out electric fleets isn't going to be good enough. If we look at how we need to actually act better, we need to have better public transport, we need to have better pedestrian transport, and then cars should be the last thing. And I don't think... And this is Do you think a, cars should be banned in city centre? Me, yes. So I drive a car. I have to I have to drive to my mum's house in Nace uh, often enough, um, and it's electric, but at the same time, I think that the city centre itself has too much congestion. And... We look at the canal cordon and the number of bicycles have increased, the number of pedestrians have increased. Why don't we start having a proper transport uh, policy instead of spin on it? So, like, for me, a public transport uh, policy would be increase public transport, have a fast rapid network going to all rural areas. In the rural areas, have a Swiss post-bus transport for individuals as well and then focus on pedestrians and cyclists and lastly then sorry I should actually have earmarked people with disability access at the top of that list as well but then finally cars so and taking cars out of the road will help massively will help with the current um, plans for transport like Bus Connect so 
Dio was saying at the UN uh, climate uh, UN that he wants to plant 440 million trees. I have constituents emailing me through my ears talking about trees being cut down in Dublin thanks to Bus Connect. But if, nah, you but take, if you're going to have greater the, access for public transport, you're going to have to cut down some trees. If you take the cars out, you don't have to take down the trees. If you look at Inchicore and the proposal there, the residents worked with Bus Connect and NTA and they took the, uh, they're taking the cars out and you don't have to take down the trees. So why can't we have a properly taught out and connected transport plan that actually will help us tackle climate change in the, at the end of the day? Well, finally, we'll ask one more question, which is that there used to be an old division in the Green Party between the Relos and the Fundies. And I suppose was the modern... Was before my time? The mo- the, the, before the, my time. The, 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 <laughs> the, I think it was before your time. <laughs> the, 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 the modern reflection of that, Irish I suppose, is against people who want to be in, in the next government and, again, and between people in the party who don't want to compromise on core green principles to get into government. So which side of the fence are you on? I'm, it's funny, I, I actually have to uh, think about this a lot <laughs> and um, each time it's slightly different. I look at what we want to achieve. Realistically, we have a short time to try to achieve it. So being in government would be great. But at the same time, it depends who your partner is of. If well, you, your partner will be either Fine Gael or Fianna but Fáil. But that's the thing. If you have partners who stand up in front of a delegation uh, uh, overseas saying one thing but acting on another, then you really know that there's not going to be much happening when it comes to climate change. Ah, so so are, we, are we ruling out Fine Gael this morning? As oh, a I'm not ruling out anyone. I'm just saying that behaviours and attitudes have to change and spin has to stop happening. Like, I'm sorry, I'm going to call it out as it is because you have the Taoiseach talking about banning uh, that we are going to cease oil exploration. There hasn't been any oil in Ireland ever. So we've been exploring for 50 years, but we haven't we haven't got anywhere. So to say that you're going to give up something you don't have is just empty spin. I'm and going to give up French poetry for Lent as uh, well. Exactly. But, uh, but you, you you look like a poet to me, Pat, seriously. So, <laughs> the first time I've been accused of that. <laughs> But And this is the thing. If we are to partner with anyone in government, then people will have to actually put their money where their mouth is and actually act on what they plan and what, what we, we, we want to deliver in terms of policy. But that is me. That is not the members. I like to disclaim it is entirely up to the members to decide who the hell we, whether we uh, will or not. It will be a recommendation not. from the leadership. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think you can flip the argument as well, though, because I think one of the dangers facing the Greens is that everyone st- tries to really steal their clothes. Because when you yep. see the uh, see the climate action march, mm-hmm. yeah. when you see the uh, support among the younger 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 people who are soon to be younger voters, many of them younger voters already for climate action, uh, there's going to be a press on the on Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael to actually move policy in that direction, as opposed mm-hmm. to just as opposed to just spin. So uh, interesting to see how the Greens adjust and maintain their own position in that uh, in that environment. Because every you know everyone's green now, I guess. But that's a, 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 exactly well. You see, that's the thing. Or everyone's trying to be green. That's not a bad thing either. So, yeah. like, I know, I, I know, we have a lot of people who say to us, "Oh, uh, everyone is, is you're the same as every other party yeah. right now," and we are still different. But at the same time, it's not a bad thing that everyone is talking about it. That sure. everyone is. The question I have is whether they're going to act on it or whether sure. they're just going to continue spinning about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you guys have to stay ahead of the agenda. I guess. Exactly, and we have to show leadership in in a, far, a variety of areas and impose 
coping with our pre-budget submission and our policies coming along. So we just had a just transition bill uh, that we put in. And we're, it, it, it's points like that that will keep us ahead of the pack. So, mm. but again, as you say, we, we uh, there are other fo- uh, others following, so... Yeah. Well, I think we'll, these are issues we will be returning to on many occasions over the future. For this morning, Hazel, Cliff, thank <laughs> yeah, you. Get out. <laughs> now, in yesterday's New York Times, the paper's publisher, A.G. Sulzberger, wrote a piece in which he described the growing threats to journalism around the world, emanating many of them from the attitude of the Trump administration. Pointing out the threats that New York Times journalists sometimes encounter, he instanced an occasion when Irish reporter Declan Walsh had to be hustled out of Cairo, not by American government officials, but by officials from the Department of Foreign Affairs. Declan, who is the paper's Cairo bureau chief, joins us now on the line. Declan, can you tell us what happened or what was the background to this extraordinary story of your exfiltration? So, um... I'd been working on a story for a number of months for the New York Times magazine about this Italian student called Giulio Regeni. Um, he's, he, he's an Italian who'd been studying at Cambridge. He'd come to Egypt um, to do some research for a couple of semesters. And unfortunately, his body was found on the side of the road in Cairo uh, in early 2016 with signs of torture. So this, uh, the, the death of Regeni became a very sensitive issue between Egypt and Italy, principally because the Italians blamed the Egyptians and said that the Egyptian security forces were, were responsible for his death. What was the nature of his research and why were the security forces interested in him? So he was a, he was a, a social sciences slash politics uh, student. Uh, he was a very smart young guy, and he. Um, it seems that uh, his research took him into the area of trade unions, and under President Sisi in Egypt, basically all forms of organised uh, mobilisation, if you like, have been cut down on. Not just the media, but also the trade unions. Um, anything that you know the regime deems as a potential threat as a focal point for people to organize and to protest. So he has done this pretty dry research into the whole area of trade unions. Um, and that seems to have just brought him into a world that brought him to the attention of the security services. Um, and it seems that some of the people he was uh, researching, some of the trade union activists he was speaking to, were actually informing on him for the security services. We detailed some of this in the story. And then we also in the story, I think, quoted a number of American officials, uh, Obama administration officials, sources, who said that the U.S. government had received incontrovertible evidence that the Egyptian security forces were behind his abduction and death. So uh, this story came out in the middle of August in 2017, and um, it was published, uh, as, as, as happens with the magazine, it was published, uh, the magazine comes out on Sunday, but the story was published online the previous Wednesday. Um, And within about, I would say, six or seven hours of the story going online, uh, I got a call from my boss in New York. His name is Michael Slackman. He's the international editor at the Times. Um, And he just got to the point very quickly. And he said, look, we've had the papers had um, has been contacted by someone inside the Trump administration. Um, and this person has information that the Egyptians are extremely unhappy with his story and that they're considering taking action, um, including possibly arresting you. Mm-hmm. 
Was that something that you were, if not anticipating, that you were aware of the the dangers of writing this sort of story, or did that come out of the uh, come out of the blue to you? Look, you know, it was pretty clear the Egyptians were not going to be happy with the story. They have a terrible record with press freedom. You know, they're among the worst jailers of journalists in the world, mostly Egyptian journalists, but a couple of foreigners have been targeted. Um, so we certainly knew that, you know, they were going to be unhappy and they might, you know, show some form of unhappiness. I mean, they do that in various ways. They stole your accreditation. They don't issue a press card. You know, they... And put out stories in the local press against you. All these things had already happened to me before, um, but I wasn't really expecting that kind of threat. So when this when this you know call came through from New York, it was pretty alarming, and we took it very seriously. Mostly because in Egypt, um, you know, the, the, there was a case some years ago where a journalist from Al Jazeera was arrested um, and put in jail for a year mm-hmm. until he finally got out. After that was a guy called Peter Gresti, mm-hmm. um, and you know, at the time, the idea was that. In Egypt, if you get caught in the maw of the judicial system, it's really very hard to get out of it. So, so you know, we were we were concerned about that. And so, you just talk us through then what happened. You, the the New York Times had been in touch with the uh, the U.S. government. They were disinclined to intervene on your behalf. So you approached the Dublin government. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not it's not that unusual for. The American government or some part of the American government to get in touch with the New York Times, you know, for various reporters around the world, if they have information that something bad is about to happen. And usually that happens in a kind of semi-official way, where someone, you know, from the State Department or from some other part of the government will call up an editor and say, look, you know, we think something's about to happen and, you know, we're warning you off. What was unusual about this is that the person who called us wasn't doing it with official sanction. He was doing it of his own initiative. And he was doing it principally because he he said, we have this information, but I don't think anybody's going to act on it. And so he he felt that he needed to give it to us so that we could take our own decision about what to do. Um, so my first port of call after this happened was to call the U.S. Embassy in Cairo, um, really just to, you know, say, look, here's what we hear. You know, we have this information. I didn't go into all of the sourcing, but I said, you know, we've been led to believe that something's happening. Have you heard anything? And, you know, can you help me or what I think we're going to leave? What should we do? And, you know, the guy on the other end of the line was, you know, certainly sympathetic, but he's, you know, the political relationship between Egypt and America is pretty close at the moment. And the um, relationship despite, between the New York Times and the US government is not quite so close. Is not it's not it's not amazing, no. Yeah. So so he um so he said um so he said, look, you're you're an Irish citizen, you know, maybe this isn't a matter for the Irish government first, um, because you know, if you want to leave if you need help leaving the country, you're an Irish citizen. So um so I called I called the Irish ambassador in Cairo, a guy called Damien Cole at the time. And um you know, Damien was great. I mean, they 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 jumped on it really quickly. He called one of his colleagues, who I believe was playing golf at the time. Um, golf game was interrupted. He he came over to my house. A considerable in, sacrifice. A, a huge sacrifice. <laughs> um, he uh, he came over to my house um, in, w- with a driver in a car immediately, and then it was a drive from my house to the airport. It was completely uneventful. Um, but I suppose the idea was that if 
you know, something, if, if, if the Egyptians were somehow closing in on me or if there was going to be any sort of issue, I would be with an Irish diplomat. And that gives you at least, you know, some, some level, level of protection. protection. And he literally walked you to the gate then in, in the airport? or He, yeah, he, uh, well, we, we got to the airport and of course I didn't have a flight. So, um, you know, on the way to the airport. And then when we got there, I just sort of sat in the back of the car and, um, you know, spoke to a travel agent and looked up stuff online and trying to figure out what was the first uh, available flight I could get to Europe. I mean, there were earlier flights going to the Middle East, but that would have been less good. So I, um, yeah, so I just, he, he was great. He sat with me uh, in the back of the car and eventually we got a flight to um, to Germany. And then uh, they waited for me until I, um, until I went through departures. Did you just essentially wait for for things to blow over then and return? Or was there any sort of contact with the Egyptian authorities to make sure it was okay for you to go back? We, um, yeah, we, 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 certainly, we certainly spoke to, uh, you know, Western officials in Cairo to see if they had heard anything while I was in uh, waiting it out in London. Um, and we did, you know, get in touch with the Egyptians tentatively. I mean, obviously, we didn't want to tell them that... Uh, we'd received that particular information at the time. But, you know, we did want to sort of <laughs> um, uh, test the waters with them, you know, engage with them some. We were obviously watching the reaction to the Regeni story to see what sort of, uh, how it was being taken in official circles. Um, and then after a couple of weeks, we came to a decision that, you know, I couldn't sit in London forever. Um, we needed to go and, and, and see where things were. And at the time, the indications were that, you know, whatever storm had been brewing inside the Egyptian system seemed to have subsided somewhat. And it was, it was you know, it was a good time to try to go back. And you haven't had your collar felt since then, no? Um, no, not directly. I mean, we've had, we've certainly had some difficulties um, with some of those things, you know, accreditation visas, um, uh, you know, negative, pub, you know, sort of conspiratorial stories about us in the local press, that kind of thing, which are all sort of weather vane signs of official displeasure. Um, there was a, uh, there was a, there was a, a unfortunate incident last year where a, um, an Egyptian website translated one of our stories into Arabic, uh, a story we'd written about vote rigging during the presidential election. Um, and then the authorities went in and they um, closed down the offices of that website and they arrested the editor um, and he was hauled off to prison where he still is now. He's a guy called Adil Sabri. So, um, you know, the, the, the Egyptians can come at you directly. They can also send signs indirectly as well. And if the US government is no longer prepared to, you know, help or assist or protect journalists for US publications overseas, how big a deal is that for journalists working in, in places like Egypt? I think it's a huge deal. Um, I should say that this this surfaced uh, yesterday in an op-ed in the New York Times by the, the New York Times publisher, um, uh, Mr. Sulzberger, A.G. Sulzberger, and uh, he, he is making precisely this point that the assaults on, the rhetorical assaults on journalists in the US and on the media in the US by the Trump administration has sort of real-world consequences for people on the ground elsewhere. 
That's right. If you if you take the the rhetoric of the Trump administration, uh, the frequent use of the term "enemies of the people" in relation to the press, um, you combine that with President Trump's close relationship with authoritarian leaders in countries where the press is under huge pressure, like Egypt or uh, Russia or others. Um, you put those two things together, and you see that if you are someone like President Sisi in Egypt, you know. Whereas in the past, you might have been at least thought twice about taking certain actions against journalists or against foreign journalists in your country because of the threat of pushback from the Americans. And now all the signals from Washington, even in public, are that um, you know the Trump administration agrees with uh, a very aggressive approach towards the press, a very you know one that doesn't um, prioritize press freedom. Um, and as I suppose the point about what happened about my experience, a small window, but maybe a telling one, is that it shows that in private, the administration is also not prioritising protecting journalists abroad. Well, Declan, we know you're in London at the moment for family reasons, but uh, be careful when you go back to Egypt and we talk to you again soon. Thanks, Pat. And that's it for this week. My thanks to producer Jennifer Ryan and JJ on sound. Hugh will be back next week. Thanks for listening. 